Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Tuesday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Today we have on Rebel Grove's Chase Parham to cover really a variety of topics. I wanted to have him on to talk some golding and maybe a little bit of college baseball. We ended up diving into both of those things, um, a little bit of the college football landscape as a whole, and some golf at the end. So good chopping it up with my guy Chase um, on a number of different topics. think you'll enjoy the conversation as we get into what uh, is next for Ole Miss football in 2023. Expectations for the baseball team. Uh, scholarships and NIL and how it pertains to college baseball and a couple other things. So buckle up. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. But before we get to that, though, I wanted to remind you, the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval and Advanced Modeling Mechanism that has helped propel Skybox at the top of the sports handicapping industry. May I give you a couple of stats from Skybox in 2023? In week one, they ended up plus 5.3 units in college basketball. You think, hmm, that might be nice. I didn't end up plus 5.3 units. I had to pay out my bookie. Well, how about week two of 2023? Skybox went a remarkable 65-43 in in their college basketball plays, a total of 50.9 units in the positive as i've been telling you guys if you listen to this podcast for weeks and months or years or however long you've been listening skybox absolutely murders it when to come when it comes to college basketball they are awesome in the nfl they're awesome in college uh, football they're awesome really in all sports but for whatever reason their numbers their matrix absolutely murders college basketball and if you're not on board yet you definitely should you're definitely giving away free money if you don't i can promise you if you like to wager on nfl playoffs and college basketball you are not going to have the success rate that skybox sports picks does it's just a fact of the matter at this point all you have to do is go online skyboxsportspicks.com sign up for a picks package you can try it for a day a week, a month, you can go all sports, you can go just NFL, you can go just college basketball, whatever you want. I'd recommend going for the year-long all-access pass. It will pay for itself and then some, and boom, you're all of a sudden essentially guaranteed to profit in the long run the way they're going, and I'm talking about profit huge, and you're definitely better positioned than you were five minutes before trying Skybox Sports Picks. When you do go online and buy a picks package, use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, that'll get you 20% off. Stop paying the bookie, have the bookie pay you. Skybox is the only way to do that in the long run. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. So glad to have them a part of the Rippy Rights podcast. They just basically print money for our customers, which is good for me and good for you. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford, a crown jewel of the Oxford community. For Rippy Rights subscriber, that's rippyrights.substack.com. You're going to get a couple of newsletters from me this week on focusing on basketball and a little bit of football as well. And you get discounted meats. Greg has switched up the Rippy Rights special. It is now three Six ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. That's about a $40 value there. You're getting for 20 bucks. All you have to do is go in and show him proof of subscription and he'll get you set up with the three bacon wrap fillets. That's one hell of a way to kickstart your grilling weekend. But then go browse around the store, find your own favorites. There's all kinds of delicious seafood, sausages, 
all kinds of delicious cuts of meat. I love the tri-tips. I love the filet burgers. It is truly the greatest butcher shop in the world. Greg wants to make your grilling cooking experience great. If he doesn't have it, he can get it for you. He's very approachable. Just go over there, in there, tell him what you want, and he'll get it for you and make it happen. He is the man. Check him out. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, here is Chase Parham on some college football, some college baseball, and a little golf mixed in. All right, we now welcome on good friend of the program, my rivals cohort, Chase Parham. Uh, we were going to, I was going to have you on originally to talk some golding, but like I turned into just a variety of topics here as I look at the detailed notes list that the Rippy Rights podcast has. But uh, how are things on your end? You're, uh, we're gearing up for another baseball season, which we'll touch on a little bit later, but it's kind of crazy to think like you're back where your book started basically a year ago. Not you starting the writing process, but just from where the story began. I, I, I'm not saying this like I'm tired and I'm not ready for it or anything, but just the way the calendar has moved has been so interesting because you get done with the season and I did, I wrote the book and then I marketed the book. And as soon as it sort of, it's over because, you know, look, I mean, I'll sell some more copies, but Christmas is sort of the cutoff there when you're like, all right, I'm done with all the main stuff. Yeah. It's already here again. I mean, I kind of this morning was looking through the roster a little bit and figuring out some preseason notes, some stories to write, some, some players to at least know more about a profile there. There wasn't much of an off season, but that's a good thing. The way it, uh, the way it happened. And I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm really intrigued on what this season looks like because I mean, in a lot of ways, it, there has never been a fan experience season like this where it's just a season. It's just whatever happens is all cake. And, and look, there's a lot of good ways for that. We can all just sort of cover baseball. We're not doing all the sideshow stuff with Mike or whatever else, but it does take a little bit of, um, not interest necessarily, but intrigue off the season. I mean, it will be different even covering it, probably in some negative ways too, because it was always sort of fun to have the second, third, and fourth stories, whereas right now it's just it's just a pretty good baseball team playing a baseball season. Well, why don't we just get to that right off the top? I had that kind of tucked away to do a little bit later, but to hell with it. I'm going to talk to Colin a little bit later this week as I believe they start practice right toward the end of this week as they mm -hmm. gear up for the season. And we were kind of texting back and forth talking about this. You You hit on it a second ago. It's like there hasn't been a season in a very long time where it's just a baseball season. Um, and part of that from like our standpoint is not bad, but not quite as uh, juicy because, you know, Colin and I started the podcast in 2021. We uh, got incredibly fortunate to latch on with Rivals and Rebel Grub and all that toward the end of that summer. But I think one of the reasons, you know, I just started this podcast in a newsletter basically out of my ass, like we'll see how it goes. But one of the things that made it somewhat compelling was we started that in March and Colin and I, I didn't even have him to, I didn't have it planned for him to come on as a weekly thing, but every week of that season became such a saga and everyone hanging on every pitch. And Mike helped out with a couple of managerial blunders that year, most famously Mississippi state, the seventh inning with mallets and mm -hmm. then Texas A&M pitching to whatever that kid's name was. But point being, I think people latched onto it because it was so dramatic every weekend, but that's not the case. Now, when's the last time this has happened? I'd have to say, 15 or 16, but the 16 piece of it is like, yes, but they were, should have been a national seed. They didn't make it out of their own regional. So it all of a sudden kind of turned into a larger Bianco thing when it wasn't quite supposed to yet. But point being, what do you half decade, seven years since we've had a normal baseball season where it's just, all right, let's see what these guys do. No larger picture cloud thing covering the year. Uh, I, I would probably say the most recent argument for it is 2017, simply because that was Dillard 
and Cooper and all those guys freshman year when you knew that maybe it wasn't going to be this great season, but you want to see how the new guys developed. So there wasn't as much postseason angst on that year. Now, they obviously missed the entire postseason. Nobody thought it would be that bad. But in a lot of ways, that was sort of watching the young kids and seeing where they develop. But no, before that, yeah, it's it, it's 15, 16. And it, it's a similar vibe on, on what I'm trying to figure out for this team because after you win it, there is a tendency to be a little fat and happy. You want to see what just sort of what the drive is with the guys. You want to see sort of how they respond. You want to see what Mike manages like. You want to see how he's different um, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, he's finally reached this pinnacle and this mountaintop. What is that going to mean for him? Does it loosen him up? Is it one of those deals? Where, again, he's been pretty loose, but is there another level to that where they, you know, they sort of become that? Hey, there's no monkey on the back whatsoever anymore, and we're just playing baseball, and you see, you see how it goes. So I, I, I don't know. I think body language will be interesting on this team when they get into some ruts. How do they sort of handle it? And it's it's going to be a fun team that's that's interesting in a couple different ways. You've got some injuries that are very, very crucial to this team on the mound that are problems. Josh Mallett, as you just mentioned, he's out for the year with Tommy John surgery. He had the surgery on November 29th, so he has no prayer pitching this year at all. Riley Maddox is out for another season. It's unlikely he will even make the active roster, but if he does, it would be just in case, and there's nobody else really to put on it. He's probably not pitching this season, so – a lot of opportunities for young guys. You got Grayson Sonier, who's just a potentially incredible freshman. What does he look like in year one? Can he pair with Hunter Elliott? Is that what his gig is? And then offensively, it's the first big offensive portal year for Ole Miss with Ethan Groff from Tulane, who I really love. Anthony Clarko from Northwestern is probably your first baseman. But it's a you're watching all these guys from an offensive standpoint, and you better go ahead and enjoy them while you have them because I have never seen this, as much turnover as I've seen year to year. There is, without really jumping to any great conclusion, there is the likelihood, I would call it, that all, all eight field hitters are gone to the draft or out of eligibility this yeah. next season. I do not think they have a single returning offensive starter in 2024 outside of maybe the DH. And a quick two-parter here, I was going to ask this, is the I guess the first piece of it, do you think this produces a better Mike Bianco program and a better Ole Miss team, the fact that there's no monkey on the back, there's no get back to Omaha, there's no – I mean, they reach the pinnacle of the sport. Do you think there's anything to the fact that, hey, it's just a baseball season, like – do you think that produces better results at all? Because honest to God, let's just say they continue kind of a pretty fierce title defense, which is the second part I'll get to in just a second, and they lose in a super regional in three games. Like no one is sitting there going, Oh my God, another super regional failure, right? Like it's 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 no. just kind of whatever. And so I just wonder if that brings out a better version of them in any way, even though the fact that you could argue it kind of brought out a better version of them this time. Like they were kind of free, but they were also you your bat could not be more up against the wall. They were into the plywood. You know, they responded because of leadership and the guys they had on this team and, you know, a lot of different reasons why that thing worked in 2022 once they got going. And in a lot of ways, it was just a baseball thing. They they figured the pitching out. Delucia and Elliott became really strong as a one-two. And that's something that didn't happen throughout the season prior to that. But, no, look, it has to make you a better team because you're not constantly reading on the Internet that you're coaching for your for – you're playing for your coach's job. I mean, you know, that I talked to multiple players about that throughout the writing process. And they knew. Yeah. Whether they want to admit that it was a, a you know, whether it, they wanted to admit it was a problem or it wasn't a problem or whatever, if that's in your mind, there is some level of pressing or some sort of negative situation that comes with that. So just having the coaches say, 
you know, because look, they all like Mike for the most part. He's 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 become a player's manager in a lot of ways. Um, that's a that's a difficult thing when you, every time you get out or you lose a game, you're going, "Hey, I'm getting these guys that brought me into this pro- program fired." That's a hard thing. You don't want that going on around. So no, I th- I do. I, th- I think it makes them a looser program. I think it makes them a better program. Now, what does that mean on the field? I don't know. I mean, they've got some holes. They've got some stuff to figure out. And the SEC is just freaking brutal oh. this season. I mean, you, you you look at it and. LSU and Arkansas probably spent the most money of anybody in the country from a portal standpoint. Tennessee's got a ton of guys back. Um, it's it's a pretty loaded conference, and look, it's just going to become a it's going to remain a loaded conference. I mean, you saw that even in the media world. We're recording this on Monday night. D1Baseball.com releasing basically an SEC companion site today to their website to just cover SEC baseball. But as Texas and Oklahoma join as NIL becomes more of a component of player procurement and how that works in baseball, it is a very easy argument, very, very easy to think the top seven, eight, nine programs in the country are all SEC teams. Do you think there's any – like, so Bill Simmons talks about this a lot with the NBA, about a title defense, where if you win it the next year – like, you know, you had, like, the the Raptors' Kawhi team where it was blown up. They didn't really have much of a shot. But, like, part of the reason – the Warriors became such a compelling story beyond, you know, their three championships is they defended it pretty damn well every year where they were just kind of that older grizzled fighter that was no matter how talented or talented they weren't or wherever they stood in that year's landscape, they were going to be an absolute M effort to eliminate and actually get them done with the season. And I'm just curious, as you say, like you wrote the book, as you think about Mike Bianco's legacy going forward, not that this year actually like, defines his legacy one way or another but do you think there's any significance to the fact that say hey things don't i don't think this will happen the former part of this they're a three seed they kind of fizzle out kind of 2014-esque where they just don't really have it i don't think that's going to happen with this team for the record versus getting back to omaha and winning a couple games there and being in the mix again or getting deep into a super regional do you think that plays any factor into it at all in just terms of how well they defend this title Look, if they stay healthy, I think they're a really freaking good team. I mean, it's draws and records and whatnot. But, yeah, I think the goal, if you're Ole Miss, is to host a regional and then and, and then win it. Don't don't lose a host regional. Now, you get into Super Regionals, and it, it's luck half the time. It's two out of threes. And especially when there isn't the factor that we talked about, the crowd's not going to be so tight anymore if you play at home. I mean, it's just – it's not a thing. They've won a national title. Mike's not going to be tight. He's not worried about his job. He's – Mike Bianco is going to be in the college and whatever the version, I don't even know if there is one, but whatever the version is of the College Baseball Hall of Fame, 100%. I mean, because he's going to pass Skip Berkman and wins this season. He's only a few behind anyway. He's going to be the number two all-time SEC winning coach when this generation of coaches ends, depending on whether Van Horn or Tim Corbin pass him. And honestly, I don't think either one of them is going to. I especially don't think Corbin is because I've got some hot takes there. I don't, I don't know that he's even coaching in a few years. But, um, you know, well, never mind. They're part of the story. You can follow up if you want. But um, I I think that all those legacy kind of things helps Mike in those ways where when they get into the postseason, yeah, it's just not the same story anymore. It's completely different. If you're just wanting things for Ole Miss, if you're telling me, hey, you know, make a Christmas list out for Ole Miss, whether it be this year or soon, it's, hey, get to Omaha on your home field. They've done it in Lafayette. They've done it in Hattiesburg. We talk about the fan support, what they did in Omaha. It's going to be the number two, number three, you know, most season tickets sold in the country, depending on Mississippi State and LSU and what they do. They deserve a home Super Regional win where they get to dogpile and celebrate in front of the fans at Swayze. So at some point, that's what you want to see here soon. But from a program standpoint, 
look, I mean, Mississippi State didn't have it completely, you know, sullen because they are, you know, spoiled because they had a bunch of injuries, didn't make the postseason the following year. But it year. feels but, different. You know, if you want to get back in the mix, you want to you want to host, you want to play in a super regional, you want to be you want to be one of the top 16 teams in the country. And then you kind of go from there. So, yeah, getting back to Omaha or something is just cake and eating it, too. But I think that advancing to that second postseason weekend or, or hosting a regional are the uh, are the keys and the very doable things because the schedule is not terrible either. Um, it's it, it, it's a gettable all gettable deal all the way around. And uh, no, yeah, I think that like, again they've got to stay healthy, especially on the mound. I don't know if they can lose anybody else, but if a couple of these freshmen are what I potentially think they are, I think they're a team that's going to get better throughout the season. They play enough quality opponents in the non-league. The SEC is obviously not going to hurt your RPI once you get into the conference. There's some pretty doable numbers that would make them a top 16 seed and at least get one weekend at Swayze for the postseason. I'm going to get the Corbin takes out of you here at the end because I wanted to hit the SEC plus piece of it, but we'll save that to the end because that's what we in the biz call a tease. Let's hit the Pete Golding stuff real quick. Ole Miss has hired Pete Golding as its defensive coordinator um, you know, in technical sense, away from Alabama, he still had a job when he took the job. Uh, we think he was still drawing a paycheck, and then he comes to Ole Miss. It's something. It's a storyline that's very interesting because we saw the opposite of this, in some ways, play out uh, with the Lane Kiffin to Auburn thing, where it kind of drug on and it was this saga, and it kept going and going, and then it didn't happen. So it immediately became this media manufactured thing, to where I felt like the Golding thing. There was some outside buzz, I would say, about what, about a week and a half before it happened, maybe two weeks, but it wasn't necessarily based on anything. It was almost one of those things where you're like, are people willing this into existence? What's happening here? I got a couple of questions, um, I would say, throughout two weeks ago, week four last, but like, is this happening? And my answer was like, I don't know, but I don't necessarily think so. It doesn't seem like I didn't have the tea leaves to think like, oh, yeah, this is a real possibility. This is happening. And then all of a sudden it happened very quickly. What did you just make of the whole thing? In a lot of ways, it seemed like the most Lane Kiffin thing of all time. Like, I mean, I saw one site report that Ole Miss has filled a de- uh, defensive coordinator vacancy, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, there wasn't really a vacancy. Like, they they just no. he just kind of brought someone on and phasing the next guy out. What did you make of how all this came to be? Did any piece of that surprise you? I think that Chris Partridge's tenure as defensive coordinator was rel- – was- was dependent on who was available to replace him. I think, yeah. you know, if there's not a Pete Golding there, Chris Partridge is probably calling plays at Ole Miss next year on the defensive side of the ball. It wasn't this deal where, hey, you're trying to get him out kicking and screaming because, look, I mean, the secret to this thing is does it need to be better? Sure, the defense was not good enough. It definitely regressed after 2021. But the reason they went down that slide was offensive in a lot of ways too. I mean, the the offense didn't sort of hold up its, its end of the bargain. But to your question – Look, Pete Golding had been in Alabama for five years. Um, there's no doubt that Pete Golden has been interested in Ole Miss at different levels. I mean, he went way down the road with Matt Luke here four or five years ago, whenever that was. And he wanted back to Mississippi, um, you know, wanted to, from a, from a family situation, wanted to be back in Mississippi. Um, so there was some, there were some positives that helped Lane outside of just simply football. I mean, look, this thing is not where, hey, Pete Golding, Golding decided that Ole Miss was the better place to win a national championship than Alabama that next season. That's that's overstating it and not true at all. But none of that really matters. At the end of the day, Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss's job is to find the best defensive coordinator they could find, and I think they did that with Pete Golding. It's a guy who, you know, the story forever has been that he got the Alabama job because of what he was able to do on the chalkboard. He came in for the interview. 
he yucked it up on the defensive side with the board with Saban, and Saban basically said, hey, you're not leaving. You're my guy. Call, tell your wife, tell the moving company, and we're going to get this done because of what he did on the board. So he gives them an, a schematic edge in a lot of ways. He's really, really good from a scheme standpoint. And then he has been an elite recruiter. And I know everybody says, hey, he's got the Alabama A on the chest, and that helps, and it does. But you're still beating other elite teams out for these guys, no matter you know who, who you're recruiting or where you're at to do that. And I think that even though Chris Partridge has done a good job of getting talent and finding talent out of the Northeast with Johnson and Igmanosan and all these guys, look, Golding's specialty is Mississippi and Alabama and the Southeast. If it's one or the other, you want the guy whose specialty is in your your, your neck of the woods versus, you know, make convincing guys to come across the country to your school and in different cultures and things. So, no, look, all the way around, this is an upgrade for Ole Miss. They are better from a coaching staff standpoint today than than they were before Pete Golding was hired. Um, I, I think it's it, it's one of those deals where everybody's looking for the why, and everybody talks about well, but you know, did he take him from Alabama? Did Nick want to keep him? And I, I, I get it, I understand why that's neat water cooler talk, but in a lot of ways, it's just noise. Uh, again, find the best guy you can find, get him there, whatever it takes to get him there. They're paying a lot of money. I mean, we're talking two million or so per year for three years, giving Golden a big contract. I mean, that's something too, and we've, we've known this with what Lane Kiffin is making. He's like eight point. Eight six eight point eight whatever it is for this season, going up to nine before the end of his contract. Now you're paying a defensive coordinator over two million or right at two million. I mean, Ole Miss is one hundred percent in the football business. I mean, we'll see what that means from a wins losses next year's team. The schedule is very 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 difficult, but you can't say they're not committed. I mean, you look at it and talk about just having an SEC program, ten million dollars in the NIL world war chest. Your head coach making almost nine million dollars. Pete Golden making $2 million, Charlie Weiss making seven figures, whatever that number is for uh, for him. There's nothing Lane could ask for. In a lot of ways, Ole Miss has completely done everything it can. It's in Kiffin's ballpark now. It's completely on his racket to recruit, to put a roster together, to build a program, and to frankly – I mean, he gave this quote to David Johnson. I'll give David credit to kind of put down some roots and, and act like he's here for a while. I mean, this is this is, this is fully on lane now. The administration, the fan base, they've given him everything he could hope for. We talked about this the other week. He's out of excuses. And, you know, I caught some shit for criticizing him during the bowl game, and maybe some of it was premature. But it's just the fact that all of this has come together. And then, like, you know, if this is a prelude to anything, the product he put on the field the last four or five games is going to be problematic. That's not what they signed up for. That's not what they paid for. And it really is. The ball is completely in his court. Like, I don't know what else at this point, if things don't go well for them next year, what is, whether it's publicly, whether it's behind the scenes, is he going to point to? Like, I, I don't see what any avenue he has other than to kind of start pointing the thumb instead of the finger, which, look, Ole Miss has a tough schedule next year. I don't think anyone considers them any sort of college football playoff contender. It feels like a, how does it look year? And then you build for the 2024 piece of this. Yeah, say, th- th- this is very clear. This is don't regress next season. You've got, uh, yeah, you, like you said, it's, it's a hellaciously difficult schedule at Alabama, at Georgia. It's I brutal. mean, that's September – that's September night game in, in, in Uptown New Orleans. It's not it's exactly gonna be a cakewalk. I mean, there's there's games there that are really weird on this schedule, and you just don't want to regress. You want to win eight games. You want to you want to get to you know a, a decent bowl. You want to be competitive. You don't want to lay eggs like the Arkansas game. Hey, look, w- w- you you know good teams when you see them look like a good team, and that is sort of the goal for 2023. It's not go win 11 games or anything like that. If you do get on some of those miracle runs, then great. We'll cover it. We'll talk about it. We'll do all those things. But 
your two judgments these next two seasons, to me, and this is as of January 16th when we don't even know the whole damn roster. We don't know who the backup quarterback is going to be for that matter as of this moment because we're still waiting on Walker Howard and Spencer Sanders and all those dudes to make decisions. But it's be a nationally relevant program to some extent in 2023. And then in 2024, the goal is to make the college football playoff. That's it. I mean, it goes to a 12-team playoff. You're paying a lot of money. In theory, that's Judkins' junior year. That's Jackson Dart back again. You've got two tackles who would just be juniors. It's a pretty loaded football team on paper for 2024. So, no, I mean, I think you have very clear, defined goals for these next two seasons. And the the, 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 the goal in two years is to absolutely make the tournament that will decide a national champion. Yeah, and, and like it's it's the benchmark next year getting to eight wins. Like, don't regress, but also how it looks. You mentioned not laying an egg. Like, you be competitive even in some of the games that you lose. Don't look completely overmatched or in a lot of ways unprepared. And we hadn't really seen that from a Lane Kiffin team until this Auburn stuff started, which apparently was just completely media manufactured. But the last thing on the golding piece of it is the I, I saw a lot of talk about how well, why is he leaving Alabama? Ole Miss would never pull him away from Alabama if Saban really wanted him there. And the the thing that I said it on is it was kind of a mirror image of Ole Miss. Like it wasn't terrible. There was probably some fatigue there. There was some fan frustration. I think in some ways there's no way they're ever going to get the 2011 to 2014 Alabama defenses again because they changed the style that they played. They don't possess the ball as long. There's more possessions in games and college football has changed since then. But where did you fall on that? Because the way I saw it was kind of a mirror image of what was going on at Ole Miss. It's like, yeah, they probably have Pete Golding back next year, but whether it's Jim Leonard or some Jeremy Pruitt buzz or whatever the case may be, if there's a better option available – like Golding felt like Partridge at Alabama, where he is now replacing the Partridge Partridge of Ole Miss. It, they felt like very similar situations and why moves were made and why traction was actually gained there. Yeah, we've got to get to a deal where we stop with total defense as this metric that is this end-all be-all when it comes to defenses because we're in the hurry-up-no-huddle era that, to the point that we are. There's so many plays being run. We, we need to start using yards per play given up. Yes. That's it, to be the stat. The total defense doesn't hold up beyond like four years at this point. And it'll change yeah, it, again in another five years. Giving up 390 yards a game might be awesome in two years. Yeah, it, it's yards per play at this point. And no, look, you, you, you make a great point that Alabama gives up more points and more yards than normal because they simply give the ball to the other team more than they ever have before. I mean, that's a pretty obvious thing. But it goes deeper than that. I mean, look, Alabama is still an elite team program. I mean, they lost the two. They lost two games this season, both on freaking the last play or whatever it was. So I'm not burying them. They could win the national title next year, and I'm not going to blink an eye. But if you wanted to say, hey, who's which one right now? Georgia is the new Alabama. Georgia's getting you know a ton of players, and now Alabama put a hell of a class together. But they're not getting just their complete pick of it like they had over the course of those other years. Georgia's taking guys. A&M, just, even though they can't coach them, is taking guys. I mean, there's lots of what you know t- options out there where you can't just go get everybody and have this this mega team that you're, you're going to run it through, or at least Alabama isn't right now. They're that number two. So I think they're a little more susceptible, and, and Ole Miss had the ball in the air to beat them this year. The point is Alabama lost two games. Alabama could have lost five games. No, they didn't credit to them for winning the other three, but they could have lost to Texas, Texas A&M, and Ole Miss in addition to the two that they did lose, they, they, they there is something different about them from a talent standpoint, from just an overall program standpoint. I mean, they're still the gold standard. But I guess in saying all that and rambling is that 
Golding also is not coaching the same team that those other guys, Kirby or whoever coached in 2011, 2012, 2013. You know, he, he did a pretty good job. I mean, he was ninth in scoring defense, something like that. I don't think he's been any worse than 18th in, in defense over the course of his tenure. So, yeah, it's not this thing where they don't give up any points at all. But let's also not make it out to be like they're just getting shredded every weekend, week out, and they're, they're not doing anything. I think that they're contributing factors all over to why they are just a little tick off what we were uh, anticipating. And I do think, as you said, I think the way their offense moves the ball is contributing as much as what the defense looks like. They just simply are a smidge less talented and a smidge worse from a offense, defense, how the schemes kind of combine together standpoint. And when you do that, you get what's happened. And I mean, look, Alabama is frustrated right now. Georgia's won back-to-back national titles. They needed a scapegoat and the scapegoat of the two coordinators. They hate Bill O'Brien and they hate Pete Golding, and they were wanting both of them out. If you're Chris Partridge today, what are you thinking? Like, because I made the argument, I, look, I, I think I dubbed it as like he got a raw deal, but like, I don't, that's not a defense of like, Ole Miss should have kept Partridge. They did this man wrong. Like there's some nuance to that, but like he gets promoted from within the guy he replaced was terrible during the COVID year. And, you know, he had that built in excuse and they hadn't had the talent in yet, but like the guy, it didn't go well this year. I'm not saying they should have kept him, but like he has like the one bad year. And then all of a sudden it's like, I'm out of a gig again for a guy that's kind of had of a journey in coaching. And it's just part of the business. It's why these guys are well compensated. But like, if you're a Chris Partridge, day, you're just sitting there thinking, Jesus, like what a brutal industry I'm in. You're frustrated. I mean, there's no doubt about that because, like I said, I, I think that it was in some ways bad luck. I mean, if Pete Golding was just completely happy at Alabama, I think Chris Parcher is the defensive coordinator next season at Ole Miss and he gets another yeah. year. You know, he was in his first year of calling plays. Um, he he – there's some defensive things on the recruiting side that they didn't exactly sure up during the course of the high school recruiting season. Um, and they, they haven't – and they don't have enough depth. I mean, you look at it, and the Ole Miss They're defensively like no linebacker, they have no depth. I mean, and again, that's – I don't know who you want to blame for that. Are you blaming Partridge because he's over the entire defense and they hadn't been able to get the most out of guys that you thought would be able to help? Um, is it something else and Partridge simply didn't have the weapons to use to get it done? I don't know. But you figure out how you want to do that from, from left to right to whatever. But at the end of the day, it wasn't good enough. They don't have enough talent. They didn't play enough guys. They gave up too many points. They gave up too many yards. They, they lost football games they shouldn't have lost, and they got, you know, killed on the defensive side of the ball in a lot of those games. But even so, I don't know that there was some just, oh, God, Chris Partridge is bad. I never really got that sense. This, to me, just feels like bad luck in a lot of ways for him because Pete Golding was available. And when Pete Golding's available, if he can be your coordinator instead of Chris Partridge, Lane Kiffin decided that was the way to go. It's completely easy to see why you would go that direction. And if you're Partridge, you're still getting paid. Um, and I know it's not monetary necessarily, but you are. You're on a contract where you're going you're gonna to get at least offset or you're going to get paid by Ole Miss. And if you've got the chops that you think you've got, you go, you get a, you get a position coach job, you go recruit like mad, and you get back to a second opportunity to call plays. I mean, he's going to get another chance. I mean, you're talking about a guy that in a lot of ways, while I understand what you're saying and I agree with you, Lane also gave him a really great opportunity to call plays in the SEC from a defensive coordinator standpoint. He had never done it before. So I'm not really out to you know get on Lane right here over something when he actually gave the guy the biggest break of his life. 100%. And it wasn't all bad. So, like, I, it's one of those things mm -hmm. where he probably can go get another gig because, you know, people started discounting the recruiting aspect of Partridge at the end. And look, I, I get it to some degree. You're trying to justify the Golding thing. And I think it's a great hire. I think Ole Miss should have done it. Again, don't get it twisted in that sense. 
But like they were trying to discount, like I saw some people trying to discount it at the end. That's a guy that was named National Recruiter of the Year twice, got named by Scout RIP, and then 247 the next year, and then was ranked like top five two more times again. But on that note, I've gotten a lot of questions about like the Davidson Igbenison, um, Tashim Johnson type stuff. Like, you know, that's a big loss for a team that already doesn't have a ton of depth going into the portal. I understand why it's happening. You know, I did the NIL interview with Tashim Johnson. That guy came to Ole Miss because of Chris Partridge. There is really no other thing about mm-hmm. it. He 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 went in senior high school through the COVID piece where you couldn't really go on visits. And he drove down with his high school coach because his high school coach was like, man, you got to go see where you're going. They drove down, I think, in the spring. But he was a Big Ten recruit and kind of a Big Ten guy until Partridge came to Ole Miss. So to package that into a question, you know, it would be nice if they could get one or both of them back out of the portal. I'd probably say Benison's more likely than Tysheem Johnson. But just of the Partridge guys that have entered the portal, maybe you get another one. I don't really know. What do you make of their chances of getting one if any of them out of that? Just best guess without knowing how any of that actually works and Golding talking to them. Yeah, I think if they have a shot at a guy, it's Davis and Igmanosa, and I think that's the most likely for sure. Um, even to the point of maybe I would give that over a 50% chance of happening again as of Monday, January 16th. Um, I, I think they have a decent shot of convincing him that Ole Miss is the place to stay. I mean, Golding is going to get a chance to recruit him and you see what you can do. Yeah, Tashim is so locked up in the Partridge that that would amaze me if Tashim is back. I don't see that. But it's I mean, like Henry you know, Parrish he, on steroids with Kevin yeah. Smith. And, and here's the here's the deal with that is, frankly, a lot of the losses because, you know, you also lost Miles Battle. I mean, a guy who goes to Utah that had you kept Miles, you'd have had Prince and Battle and you had the guys. Instead, you lose Battle too. It's why it makes Igben Osten so, so valuable there. You know, hey, look, he didn't play this season, but I think he has some talent. Kendrick Breedlove now is going to Colorado. They've been hit pretty hard at the cornerback position where it's either up to Golding to do one of two things, either get some of these guys back out of the portal and recruit them back to Ole Miss or replace them with dudes that you pulled from Alabama or somewhere else. I mean, that's – welcome to college football in 2023. That's the world we're in. You're going to lose dudes in the portal when coaches lose their jobs. But the, the goal is to have a net positive and to find dudes somewhere else because of who you bring in as your coordinator. That, that That's how this thing works at this point. Quarterback-wise, they need another body, right? I mean, as much as I love my man, Kid K. Dent, proud Jackson Academy alum, he did go through senior day. I don't know. I was a little surprised by that. Um, I would assume they're, at least at this point, maybe trying to convince him to come back. I don't really have any sort of intel when it comes to that. But you had Walker Howard on campus over the weekend. As we record this on a Monday night, you alluded to it earlier. We don't know what he's going to do. Seems like there's some positive Ole Miss momentum there. But whether it's Spencer Sanders, I guess we'll break this into two parts because they are a little bit different in some ways. Oh, one, it's established. Ole Miss, another, Ole Miss needs another body at quarterback and a capable one, right? I mean, with respect to Kincaid Dent, if Dart twists an ankle, I don't think your backup plan can be Kincaid Dent if you have any hopes of being a, like you mentioned earlier, a nationally relevant football team. I guess we'll start with the Walker Howard piece of it. If Ole Miss does land Walker Howard, how do you see that? What is Jackson Dart when he wakes up on whenever that day happens or whenever it happens, what is he thinking? Do you see it as a quarterback competition? How do, how do you see that playing out? You know, look, Ole Miss is trying to sign all, it's trying to sign both of them, Spencer Sanders and Walker Howard. Now, I don't that that that, that would blow me away if it happens, but they are no trying for the kids. at this point. And at this point, nobody's pulled out. So I'm just mentioning that from that standpoint. Is that as of right now, right now, Ole Miss is just trying to fill the quarterback room with as many dudes as they can. 
Um, they're also still recruiting Mike Wright out of Vanderbilt. So Walker Howard is the one that makes the most sense if you can get him. It's probably down to Ole Miss or TCU. He left TCU on Sunday morning. TCU thought Ole Miss was in the lead when he left Fort Worth. Um, so Ole Miss, as of again, Monday night, is the favorite. He might commit to TCU in five minutes. But as of the moment, um, it's at least believed around the network that Ole Miss. And here's what that does. It gives you a very, very capable quarterback for your number two, a guy who is a five-star prospect out of high school, sides with LSU. It fixes the fact that you didn't sign a quarterback in the class last year. That's completely irrelevant. you got a blue-chip five-star quarterback now, and you, you solved that problem. No, Walker Howard is a huge addition were that to happen, if that's to happen in a number of ways. Um, gives you a capable backup. It gives you a guy to look forward to for the future. He's a guy that, as you mentioned, he's not ha- – absolutely, I just have to uh, – I have to start right now. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's all those different things where it's the perfect fit in a way with Walker Howard. With Spencer Sanders – I don't like it as much from this thing is Dart is the starter. You put everything into him being the leader of this team. Sanders is a guy who's been, you know, considerable in consideration for all conference. He's a guy who started so many games at Oklahoma state. I mean, if he's coming in somewhere, he's coming in to compete and play. And that's good. I mean, look, if you beat somebody out, great. You play the best guy, I guess, but I don't know what that does to your locker room. I don't know what it does to all these different things. Like, I just can't make that compute the same way in my head, considering the capital that Jackson Dart has built up as the starting quarterback. Now, in saying that, yes, you have to have a guy playing quarterback in that number two spot that can come in and win football games because as tough and he is, he is one tough son of a bitch. As tough as Jackson Dart is, he is a human. He can sprain an ankle. He He's hurt his shoulder multiple times throughout the season. He's going to be physical. He's going to run. He's not going to let up. You know how what you're going to get with him, so you better have a backup plan just in case he gets injured. So it's one of those deals where I think Walker Howard is an incredibly important piece for Ole Miss moving forward. And um, I think that, that that that's the one that when I'm looking up and I'm trying to figure it out, that, that that's where all my attention goes and where I think makes the most sense. Because the Sanders piece, if it doesn't <laughs> rectify the not signing a high school quarterback, right, that, does, that adds to your depth for 2023 – but nothing else. Whereas Howard has some glimpse of a future, right? I mean, he has tons of years of eligibility. I've tried to stop counting with the whole COVID thing. I don't think the COVID thing affects him, right? As he comes in as a 2021 true freshman, but whatever, be that as it may, that actually gives you like long-term depth. And as you mentioned, rectifies the fact that he didn't sign a high school quarterback and would be a gigantic win to Lane Kiffin's theory of de-emphasizing high school recruiting and going to find portal kids and actually building depth with portal kids with multiple years of eligibility left, where I feel like Spencer Sanders does not do that because he's just a one, you know, a one-year guy. And I would imagine that would be a little more of a focal point in terms of the storyline of a quarterback battle, because as you mentioned, he's won all these games. He's played in the big 12. He's definitely coming in to start the expectations, not to just spend his last year sitting. Whereas Howard, I do think there'd be a competition because if Howard blows everyone away, I don't think Dart is completely irreplaceable and is entrenched as the starter hundred percent, but like on the Sanders aspect of it, it just be like, guy. Right, this is a one-year thing, but like Walker Howard would actually give you long-term stability, and that would be a big win for Lane Kiffin's theory, where it seems like Spencer Sanders would just kind of be a, all right, we found another capable body as a backup as a one-year stopgap to maybe buy us some time to find another Walker Howard or novel concept, get a high school quarterback. 
Yeah, look, Lane Kiffin in his signing day press conference, I was sitting there staring at him when he said, you know, look, the portal's different than past seasons. There's going to be guys that you get out of the portal to be backups. They're willing to be reserves or to, to wait their turn and those things. And I kind of scoffed at it and went, okay, yeah, that's not – like for anybody with any reputable whatever, that's not the way it happens. But if they lock down Walker Howard, that's exactly what they get out of a kid who was so highly ranked, like 20th nationally or something like that, at a prime position at quarterback. I mean, it's it's phenomenal in that way. I mean, I, you, you give Lane or whomever that recruited him all the credit in the world for that because, you know, yeah, sure. I, you know, in my mind, I'm looking at who's in the portal from a quarterback standpoint. I'm going, yeah, sure, you can go find somebody to go play. Um, you know, I, you find somebody to go play quarterback. You'll get one of those Tulsa guys or something like that that doesn't get some big-time school bringing them in. But to get somebody like this, because Walker Howard can go to a lot of schools and play quarterback especially if he's willing to actually sit and wait and compete, he could go pretty much any damn where in the country. So as this thing transitions, just from a stability of program, stability of that position, he, he's easily become the, the the biggest recruit and the biggest battle Ole Miss is in from a portal standpoint. And you mentioned scoffing at that when Lane Kiffin said it. I think the biggest, like, and it goes position by position. Obviously, quarterback's the main focal point. But one of the things that we've talked about just back and forth over the last few weeks with Lane's strategy is, Okay, yeah, maybe that's available, but how many Walker Howards are there? What is your margin for error if you don't get Walker Howard? And I'm not just talking about specifically Ole Miss at the quarterback position this year. Multiple years building depth through the portal. How many Walker Howards are available to where if you miss on one, where's the next one? Because that 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 lends itself to every single position on the football field, right? Because now as you sit here as Ole Miss, you as we sit here today, have lost Tashim Johnson. You've lost Davis and Igbenosin. You think you need to build a lot more depth on the defensive side of the football. His answer is multi-year portal kids. But I think the one hang-up is, is again, how many Walker Howards at whatever position are out there? And that largely remains to be seen, right? Like, what do you make of this strategy long-term? Is it just a wait-and-see thing? Do you judge their roster entering the spring? Do you in judge it post-spring? I'm just fascinated by the whole thing. Like, I feel like I get like knocked for criticizing it the whole time, but I'm more so just asking questions, maybe in a skeptical nature, but like, is this actually a viable thing? Are there a lot of those types out there at multiple positions to build depth where it's a known commodity versus a high school kid? You don't really know. Yeah. Look, it's hard to get a Walker Howard at every position because right. that's such an interesting case that's going on right there with, with, with him. It's, it's not even, you know, look, I mean, I'm sure there's a market rate to it, but it's not even somebody who's just got their hand out and wanting as much NIL money as possible. That's not what that family is. That's not the story with this recruitment as it's going on. He's going to choose the best place that he believes is is, is there for him from a football perspective. Um, and look, I'm sure those guys exist, but getting in there and getting them at all the different positions is very, very difficult. I mean, he has four years of eligibility remaining. The key from a portal standpoint, if you're trying to build any type of depth, and here's what you're also building is leadership. Guys that are invested in your program where if the stuff gets rolling downhill in a bad way early in the season, they care. The Matt Corrales, the Sam Williams, you know, you know, Otis Reese became one of those guys, and he's a transfer. Can you get those multi-year transfer guys who have some skin in the game from a program standpoint, not just the one-hit wonders who come in from one season? So I think that's important. I think you're really looking toward those two, three, you know, if you can get it four-year portal guys who can play at the level and you're getting the right fits from that standpoint – but you mentioned judging the roster. We can't judge Ole Miss's roster until the middle of the summer because there's another portal window. It's May 1st to May 15th, and everybody's going to do this again after guys go through spring practice and don't like where it's set up from the spring or they don't like the new coach or whatever it is. 
you're going to see all this again. So, no, you're talking about summer from that standpoint. But here's the deal. From a program standpoint, I want to see, and I mentioned this on the Oxford Exxon podcast on Monday morning, I want to see what Ole Miss does in the 2024 high school recruiting class through the summer because this is the first time they've had that NIL money going through an entire cycle. You know, last year they didn't get the NIL money to the point that they got it until like late November. What's too late by then? You can't do what you would need to from a high school recruiting standpoint at that stage. So I want to see what they do. Do they they elevate? Do they get more elite? Do they get more four-star guys? Do they get more blue chippers? Is it a bigger class? Do they sign – 20 players and they've got 12 four stars in it or whatever it is. I don't know. I'm just making up numbers. But can they take that next step from a high school recruiting standpoint? Is that the plan? Is that the strategy because they have some money to get into those waters? That's where we'll see really what Kalane is trying to do, what he's comfortable doing, and what they're able to do from that standpoint. Because, sure, you're going to find some Walker Howards. You're going to find some guys. You know, I think, you know, J.J. Pegues is going to be a multi-year guy that helps Ole Miss in an important position. But you're at mercy to what the portal has. There aren't a ton of linemen, offensive or defensive, in the portal, period. They need to get dudes. Well, that's easier done out of the high school standpoint than it is the portal standpoint. You know, the portal, still to this day, a lot of the guys there that are potentially elite difference makers are guys like Chris Marshall. And, look, Ole Miss got him, and maybe he turns into one hell of a number one receiver. They need him to. But it's there, there's a negative somewhere. They, they got into the portal for a reason. There's something there that you've got to kind of overcome. And at some point, that becomes almost the scoreboard, is that, hey, when you brought guys in, were they exactly what you thought they were going to be from the other school? Were they better? Were they worse? Were you able to develop? Were you able to be the right fit that changed something for them? Did you evaluate everything about their situation correctly when you brought that portal guy in? And then on the other side, guys that left your program, did they do better or worse or the same at the other place? Did they do something that did whatever? You know, is Austin Keys just going to be – going to go to Auburn and just play a little bit and be an okay linebacker like he was at Ole Miss, and you go, yeah, that's exactly what we thought he was, or does he turn into some all-SEC guy, and you go, well, damn, where the hell did that come from? You know what I mean? I mean, yes. I, that, that's one of the more fascinating parts of the portal in, 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 in the way this works is that there's two scoreboards, an incoming and an outgoing, and you want to make sure yours from an incoming standpoint is a lot higher still than, than, than what's outgoing on you. Well, I'm glad you brought the Austin Keys piece of it up because that's where I was kind of going next. You talk about what they have to replace defensively. Austin Keys was a very productive, available player for them. Whatever you think he is as a ceiling. If I'm not mistaken, he entered the portal before all this stuff came to light. Now, who knows what happened behind the scenes and who knew what when. But that was kind of a, I won't say quiet because that would insinuate that people didn't cover it. But that was like a quietly significant departure for Ole Miss that didn't happen after the golden smoke came out. If I have my timeline right, what the hell did you make of that? Um, you know, I think that he just almost was coming in over him on his, in his position. He played a lot, but he didn't play to the level, you know, especially had Troy stayed healthy. He was not as big of a piece of the defense as Troy. Um, and I think, you know, he'd been hurt. I, I don't know exactly. I'm really speculating here. So I'm trying to be a little careful, but, I think he just kind of wanted a new thing. I don't think he did anything wrong, but I think he just didn't elevate and he didn't get to the point at Ole Miss that he thought he was going to get to. Look, everybody's tampering, so we can say Auburn called or did this or did that, and I'm sure they did, but hell, okay. I mean, if your school is not tampering, you're not doing your job at this point. Um, but that felt like just a, didn't quite max, maximize what was 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 out there or what he has in his head for what he can do. I mean, I think that's what that is. Um, what you would love to know – is did any bridges get burned at yeah. the time of him getting in the portal? Whereas 
you know, maybe he did like Pete Golding, but it was just too late. There was too much done. I mean, you know, what I would have been curious about is would Ole Miss had a chance to get back in on him at any point, or as soon as he was out, that was that, and it was done, and you just kind of move on. Yeah, because he already he's at Auburn now, right? That story's done. He he's yeah. committed to Auburn, so it's like and the Hugh Freeze aspect. Boy, that just adds another week of intrigue to that Auburn game. Last kind of uh, like macro point before we hit just a couple of random topics and get out of here is the fact that you and Neil have been around the block a bit. Y'all covered a lot of football seasons. That was not a drive-by calling you guys old, but y'all have done this for quite a while now. How different is this for you guys compared to anything else you've ever covered from a football standpoint? Because, you know, I I, I was around for what, I guess, about five years. I did it full-time, basically roughly that time, counting a year and a half at the DM where I should have just been paid six figures with all the shit we were doing. Um and how the and how much I skipped class to cover some of that stuff. But point being is it's a whole different world. Like how have you guys had to adjust how you commentate, evaluate stuff on a database basis, really with this circus that's un, been unleashed upon us over the last 18 months? Like how, how differently have you guys had to approach how you cover stuff, how you commentate on stuff? Because it's almost at the point now where it's like until they enter what we love to call fall camp in the dead heat of August, you don't know a whole lot about anything. And that's just a Mm -hmm. weird place to be. It's weird place for fans, but it's a particularly weird place for guys like you who have seen this landscape be kind of what it is and then completely get turned on its head. What has that been like for y'all? The positives are that something's always intriguing or going on and there's kind of always another story and you're trying to figure it out. You're being analytical on the incoming and the outgoing and trying to figure out how guys can adapt to different levels, whether it be, you know, FBS at Central Michigan, the Ole Miss or whatever you're you're talking about. So there's a certain free agency all the time element to it that is a very positive, kind of a fun thing. Um, It's also going to become more positive just as we get more used to it. It's still so new that people don't necessarily know how to approach it and handle it every single day. But it has some very clear negatives, I mean, for our business or just in general. One of them being that it has eliminated the National Signing Day being this huge holiday event, which was the best thing about our business from a financial standpoint or an interest standpoint, however you want to define that. Now February is just another day. And even in December, people are more worried about the portal guys and the high school guys necessarily, depending on what's going on. So that's been a huge negative. Um, And then two – and I think this matters. I've har- I've been beating this drum for a while. We'll see if I'm proven right or wrong or where I fall on it. But I think one-year players and a lot of transfers are bad for college football from the standpoint of fans cannot learn about guys. They can't put guys in their heartstrings, and they become their dudes, and they watch them grow up and become all-SEC players and make the big plays as juniors and seniors. And you know you got three years with this guy. And there's – look, there's an emotional connection to that. There really, really is. It's why it works – you know, it's why it's always been a football thing. It's why in different sports that works to such an extent. You know, the one and done hurts college basketball and in and, and, and a lot of similar ways from a college standpoint and a fan standpoint. And whether they are or they are not, so many guys who get in the portal are just simply labeled as mercenaries. And that's it. And they're just looking for a new jersey and whatever. Well, that changes the emotional impact and connection from the fan to the player. And when you've got enough of that, that potentially impacts play, you know, fans' willingness to engage, whether it be websites like ours or going to the game or whatever we're talking about. I mean, more than ever, you need to win discretionary time and discretionary money from fans, and fans need a product that they're proud of. And part of that product is knowing and caring about players. 
That's why feature stories are so important that, you know, a lot of times the athletic departments don't really understand that, that, you know, you wrote that big Quinshawn Judkins story. People started liking Quinshawn more after that. I mean, you know, Jackson Dart, you, you learn about guys, you appreciate them. They're not football robots. They become humans to you. And anything you can do to connect with a player or humanize with that player, that helps the entire athletic department in a lot of ways. So I think there's positives and negatives, but I, I do have an eye on the negative, and I just don't think we're going to have a real answer to it for you know probably five years to see exactly how this levels out all the way. I was listening to you guys in the car a couple of weeks ago, and I appreciate you mentioning this as you are talking about this kind of very subject on the podcast, is I did those two stories on Jackson Dart and Quinjon Judkins. And look, I'm not some genius that pulled this out of my ass thinking, oh yeah, these are the two guys. But like clearly they were very impact players on the field. I did the dart piece of it. I did it from that standpoint because he's in the quarterback battle. I know he's not going anywhere. Um, You know, his dad was more than willing and available to talk. And I'm sitting there thinking this is perfectly, it lines up. But you mentioned the negative aspect of it is, it's like you talk about the mercenary thing. How many times did I pitch you? There's at least three guys off the top of my head that I pitched you potential stories about like, hey, should we go do this? Should I go inquire about this? But like they didn't end up playing. They didn't end up making mm-hmm. an impact. Where the hell are they next year? So does that actually matter? And like from a human standpoint, like it doesn't make their story any less valuable. But from a business standpoint of trying to put out content for people, it's like, is that actually going to register if this guy, this cat's not playing and he's not going to be here next year or it's clear he's not playing next year? That piece of it is just absolutely wild to me. And well, it's something we're going to have to continue to figure out and evolve on because this is not the end. It's going to continue to evolve. This is not some new era. This is a transition shit show era, for the lack of a better phrase, where we get some sort of stability, don't you think? Well, I mean, look, look at it from this standpoint. I mean, much like the feature story, this website or this podcast network did three player shows where the number one requirement when we're predicting and trying to plan and whatever is, are these dudes going to play? Are they going to play every week where we have something to talk about? And I mean, and again, I feel terrible for him, but Mason Brooks didn't play much at all. Um, it was a know, trooper and, for you guys in that show. Yeah, hell, we talked about no this a lot. There's no way y'all could have known, but it's just that's a that's we a thought he was point. the right tackle. I mean, I, you know, we thought he was the right tackle. We chose him for a lot of different reasons, and the main one being playing time in a lot of ways. Davison Igmanosin, he got benched at one point for Miles Battle. I mean, you know, look, it's a freshman, so we kind of did that one with a little bit of just kind of whatever because we knew he was a top recruit, but now he's transferred a year later or potentially transferred. And again, Ole Miss very well may get him back, so I jumped the gun a little what I said. But, you know what I mean, he's in the portal. It's at least that possibility. Troy Brown now was aces and played, and that turned out exactly like you wanted him to turn out. But, no, I mean, we we got basically one and a half out of three when the main requirement was, are these dudes going to be on the field more than they're not on the field? Before I keep you here all night, you had some Tim Corbin takes earlier, but I'll package it first in a D1 baseball piece of it. They announced that SEC Network Plus, which is basically, without reading into it, I saw the headlines today, but I haven't read into it yet. I should have done it probably before we recorded. But the fact that they're basically, it's basically a separate subscription where they're going to do extra content on the SEC. And you and I have talked about this a decent bit through the years. We both like Kendall and Aaron. What the service they provide for college baseball, I think, is incredibly important. And there is a market for it. But in terms of like a gigantic market of the fan and who's subscribing for national college baseball news, I know you and I have both kind of wondered, like, hey, what actually is that market? Like, how big is it? Like, are they turning just a crazy profit? Or are we going to see Kendall and Aaron pulling up in Lambos and staying at wherever hotel they want type of thing? versus just are they doing well and it's a needed service. What did you make of that? Because I think 
them hyper focusing it on the Premier League and the SEC, the only league where you can say the majority, vast majority of the schools care about this stuff. I think it was a very smart move. What did you make of that? Uh, that you know announcement and all that. I think it's a smart business decision. But what did you make of it in terms of just the landscape of college baseball? Yeah, look, I don't have any idea what their market is. I would assume that it's – I mean, now, look, when you're covering the entire country, you don't need very many – a lot of schools to actually put together a pretty large number overall to to pay the number of people they have as full-time people. A lot of their people are stringers or part-times or whatever. But, no, anything you can do to niche it to the most rabid, caring conference in the country that also happens to be the best conference, I, I think it's a no-brainer. So I think they did it from a business standpoint. I think it will help their bottom line. But it's what I said at the top of the show. It's indicative of what's coming, which is that the SEC is going to be so dominant in baseball because of what NIL, because of eventually you're going to get more scholarships. I mean, you know, the, the schools that are really, really good but don't have scholarship help, Ole Miss, Auburn, teams that were in the College World Series last year, including the teams that won it, well, suddenly they get 20, 25 scholarships. Well, that's a different, another move up. You've got all the NIL money. I mean, Ole Miss is going to be rabid in the NIL portal market after next season when they lose all those bats. They're going to go get dudes all over the place. So, no, we're we're already there because, look, six teams in the College World Series where their SEC teams are teams that are going to be in the SEC moving forward. It was Notre Dame and Stanford, and everybody yeah. else was an SEC team or either Oklahoma and Texas. So that's where this thing is right now um, for um, for D1 baseball, for SEC, for the college baseball landscape is that, I mean, you're talking about LSU, Arkansas, Mississippi State, Ole Miss, Texas, Texas A&M. Those are going to be the number, the top six teams in the country, period, right there. Those are the top programs in the country, which all this stuff finally stabilizes into what I'm talking about. And then that's talking about, I mean, it's your segue – that's not even mentioning Florida. That's not even mentioning Vanderbilt. That's not even mentioning these other teams that are completely capable of winning a lot of freaking baseball games. South Carolina is not going to be down forever. They're going to be good because they care enough to be good. Tennessee was the number one team in the country all freaking year until Notre Dame beat them. I mean, no, you're just talking about a league where we can talk about the other conferences and there's interest and in whatever, but what's happening here slowly is that D1Baseball.com is becoming SECBaseball.com. Yeah, it, it really is. is in a lot of ways. And like their their ability to cover other programs in the West Coast and all that is needed. But you're right. Like I think they're starting to figure out where their bread is buttered. For you, for someone that's enjoyed college baseball for a long time, you have to enjoy where this is going. I like college baseball. We're kind of cut from the same cloth from that point, that standpoint. But with all the TV stuff and you being able to be able to see every game whenever the hell it is you want to at any point over the last seven, eight years – I mean, I know I brought this up, I'm sure, a couple of times when we recorded I have multiple friends who don't like baseball. They, like, shit on us for liking Major League Baseball, but they love Ole Miss baseball. They're bought into the SEC thing. Even before the last couple of years, from myself standpoint, I'd like to think that I watch a decent amount of college baseball, but I probably not as much as nearly as I pretend to. But this past two years, particularly this last year with Tennessee, I'd watch a ton of Tennessee. That, that were they actually going to lose that series at Kentucky? Like the Auburn thing, where Vitello throws a bat and then a week later acts like he's the most aggrieved person ever because someone did something else. Like you have to like the direction it's going, right? Like it's a it's almost like proof of concept of like, hey, when you put it into baseball, into a 58-game thing where every game matters to some degree, it's kind of a badass product, and it's like minor league light in the SEC sense. It just it seems like the future is very bright in that sense. 
yeah, look, you've got a lot of arms that are that are very talented, that are major league talented. So you can act like you're a very high, you know, a middle of the road minor league league at this point. I mean, it's it looks like high A with some double A built in, um, and depending on the day. Now, look, you can get the shitty game too. Don't get me wrong; it can look bad, but for the most part, the weekend, especially on Friday and Saturday, are really good baseball. Have they? They have talented guys. Guys you're going to know. And yeah, there's a certain. It's proof of concept. The games are also getting a little shorter. It's it, it, it's gradual, but you're not getting as many four-and-a-half-hour baseball games as you did. It is starting to move a little quicker with the changes that they have made. I think it's in a really healthy place. They pay the most money, so they've got the best coaches in the country. They're getting all the talent. You've got enough places that really put good environments where it becomes a better TV sport because of the crowds and the fans and what you're seeing around the place. And then the collection of coaches that you have in the SEC right now is, is a fascinating bunch where if you care about college baseball or you just want to get interested in something, it is this mini major league sort of group where you've got the heels and you've got guys with certain personalities and mentalities and all these different things that are that are pretty compelling, that are pretty captivating on a week-by-week basis where, you know, you go into a Tennessee Vanderbilt series and go, God, you got talent all over the field, but you also get this strange Tim Corbin, Tony Vitello dynamic. You get, you know, Dave Van Horn and his crotchety self with whatever you've got going on. You've got, you know, Mike with his Italian and throwing his hands around and all this stuff. I mean, there, there, there's kind of sort of things at every school that have kind of made them a cartoon characters in the best way possible. And I do. I think it's college baseball and it's made poor people care because – yeah, I mean, look, I get I'm a complete college baseball scene head, but at the same time, going into this season, I mean, just off the top of my head, there's 10 programs where there's something about them that I find fairly interesting where I'm I'm at least going to watch a little bit to see what happens with, you know, yeah, probably 10 programs. There's probably three or four that I'm kind of whatever on, but that's about it. What's your Tim Corbin hot take? Why is he not coaching in a few years? Well, I I, I, I guess I'm, I misspoke on that because I was thinking about him from a Mike Bianco chasing Mike record, and I said he's not going to be at Vanderbilt, but I still think he's going to be in the SEC. So I think he is very much a threat to catch Mike. Why would he leave him. the best scholarship advantage place possible for somewhere else? What's your thought there? Because that scholarship thing is going to go away fairly soon, as I just mentioned. These other schools are starting are going to get – within the next five years, they're going to get – 20, 25 scholarships, whatever the number is, we're still moving in this player-friendly era. And NIL is going to make scholarships more and more irrelevant as time goes on. Because if a kid can get $125,000, who gives a shit if he even needs eight grand to go to school? They'll pay that too. I mean, there's all sorts of things where Vanderbilt doesn't have that kind of NIL money for baseball. They're not going to get it. Well, they don't so Tim Corbin – well, amen. So <laughs> Vanderbilt is this deal where – they're, as soon as any of these changes happening, and maybe right now, look, they're not sucking next year. They can win the national title. It's all like Alabama. I'm not saying they're dead. But they're no longer this dominant force. Other teams can do this thing. I mean, it is very much wide open. And when Vanderbilt lost that, I mean, Tim Corbin did it this past year. He called Clemson and was like, hey, I'm interested in your job. What about it when they hired really? him package? Yeah, he, he, but he was screwing around. He was never going to take it. He was just kind of pissed off. He's – He's got this deal where he's almost kind of whining that Vanderbilt no longer has this ultimate advantage over everybody else. So if you're telling me to guess, and it's just a guess, but I think Tim Van Horn is at a different SEC school within three years. I, I, I don't Corbin, think he's you at mean. Vanderbilt. You're saying yeah, sorry, Van yeah, 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 gone too? Yeah, no, sorry. Tim Corbin. Tim Corbin, sorry. I was thinking that there's some rumors that Van Horn is not going to be at Arkansas very long, or at least he might hang it up fairly soon. Tim Corbin okay. would be hell at Arkansas. 
So you're of the belief, this is a fascinating thing that I hadn't even thought about. You're of the belief that NIL is going to supplement the fact that Vanderbilt can give a bunch of kids full rides. So Ole Miss having to split room and board and books and all that. My uh, uncle played college baseball at State, and he used to talk about in the 80s, where it's like, we used to split, whether it's dormitories Mm -hmm. or books and all that stuff. You're of the belief from a financial standpoint, and I guess it makes sense depending on what you actually have available for whatever school. I heard you talking about on the podcast about honestly a ridiculous number of what LSU may have paid for their NIL people, their their players from an NIL standpoint, after talking to someone, you're of the belief that that is enough of amount of money at enough schools to completely render the full scholarship thing where Vanderbilt gets 25 full kids on scholarship versus Ole Miss trying to split up 11.7, almost completely moot, not if not completely. Well, look, where – where ba- college baseball is socioeconomically, Vanderbilt's education still carries a very large stick. You're going to have kids that simply want to go to Vanderbilt to go to school. Nerd. They're going to choose that. They can get full rides. So, no, look, Vanderbilt's going to be a dominant college baseball team. They're just not going to be this ultimate dominant college baseball team over everybody else. And, yeah, I think there's going to be five or six schools that on a player-by-player basis, depending on what we're talking about, can go out there and go, yeah, look, I may not can give you a full ride, but I can do this, and here's cold, hard cash. And Because I think as college baseball continues to grow, so does college baseball NIL. More people start caring. More people put money into it. We're not there today. We're probably not, not going to be there in this next recruiting class. But I think if something crazy doesn't change, and I'm right on the way that things keep getting structured, by 2025, 2026, yeah, 100%. I, I do. I think NIL starts really negating this thing. I think that's about the time the scholarship situation will change. I mean, Crystal Monis at Mississippi State thinks we're within a couple of years of the scholarship thing really changing. And if that's the case, yeah, you're talking about five or six schools that I just mentioned is the top baseball jobs in the country. And I did not say Vanderbilt. Now, Vanderbilt's still a you know, top 10, top 11 job, something like that. But Tim Corbin didn't sign up to be top 10. He doesn't handle top 10 well. He wants he wants to have the biggest stick at the ball. And uh, I think that, that that because of that, it wouldn't just be calling Clemson and playing around and whining or whatever he's doing. I think he legitimately would be interested in your Arkansas, your Texas's, that kind of job as, uh, as things move forward. Not to uh, uh, trump y'all's pod, but who, do, who wins the East? Who wins the West? Who are you fascinated by this year? Uh, I mean, look, LSU is so talented. It's hard to say they won't win over the course of a regular season. I mean, I just do. I, I think they're the, the team that will win the West. Um, they're going to probably win the overall. I mean, they're they're very 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 good. Um, they're 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 awesome. But now, look, we saw from Tennessee. That doesn't mean anything because it's the same thing. When you have nothing but a bunch of transfers in a lot of different areas, how do you handle adversity? Tennessee handled that like crap last year, and I know it wasn't transfer based, but just in general. It's a long season. It's a marathon. Um, but I would definitely go LSU. I think you're talking in the West, LSU, and then Arkansas Ole Miss, probably, something like that, from a from a one, two, three. I don't exactly know what AM has back, so I don't know how to how to factor them in. I need to look at AM. They've been a sort of forgotten child to me a little bit. Um, and then on the other side, I mean, look, Tennessee's gonna be incredibly State? good again. I mean, not last year's problem, better, but not there. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, we'll see. I mean, again, everybody's spending money. There's so many newcomers, it's hard to know without seeing these guys on the field. But just completely off the top of my head, I think I would go LSU, Arkansas, Ole Miss, A&M, State, Auburn, Alabama. All right, I derailed you. Um, go to the other side. 
Uh, Tennessee's the winner. I think they've got a ton back. I love what they've got on the mound. Um, they're gonna they're gonna win the East, and they're not gonna be like last year. It's not gonna be this dominant force of a thing. But I do like them because I I wonder, and I think I'm right here. I think Vitello takes a little bit of edge off here in this next year. I don't know that you're going to get he this have complete to? What does that look like if they're not winning at the ridiculous level that they yeah, did? I don't they think almost consider themselves this... co-national champions with Ole Miss because they won some games in May, which congrats to him, I guess. Hang a banner. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I don't think you're going to see this complete hill of a program from Tennessee. I think it's going to be an edgy program. They're going to look more like a really good Vanderbilt team that definitely will get after your ass, but it's not the same way that it was with Drew Gilbert and those guys and the way they were playing. And then your your wild cards are Florida and Vanderbilt from a straight talent standpoint and what they have available. But you know, look, Vanderbilt, they're going to have what is the kid that pitched against uh, Carter Holton, who pitched against Ole Miss in the SEC yeah. tournament. He's probably going to be their ace. He is a freaking stud. But they lose Christian Little to LSU. They're, I mean, they're kind of scrambling a little bit on what's available. So I think it's a three horse race with those three teams. And then what's interesting about the East is Georgia can be good again or at least above average, but barring something that's unexpected or I'm not aware of, I think you're talking about a pretty weak bottom of the East there with South Carolina, Missouri, and Kentucky. I don't, I don't know that those teams are very good at all. So in saying that, the reason I'm going there is that depending on who some teams get out of the West from a schedule standpoint, you could see a couple really gaudy Eastern division records that would potentially let one of those teams win the SEC over LSU or, or whomever even though they're not actually better. They just have a scheduling benefit to playing in the East where, you know, maybe they go eight and one out of those nine games against those three teams at the bottom half of the the, the, the division. Last thing, golf-wise, I got you on the Hayden Buckley train early. Our guy almost finished it off yesterday, finished his second at the Sony Open. Siwoo Kim wins it. I got to say, I was texting his brother actually throughout that yesterday. I was like, I've never rooted against a golfer in my life, but I'm standing in front of the TV trying to will – Siwoo's tee shot on 18 where he tees the three wood up almost like a driver into the ocean. I was like, please God hit this shit off the map. I just, it's another example. And we talked about this a bunch. It's just another example of like the thin margin of error for careers. Like Buckley's basically four birdies away in a Monday after he Monday qualified for a Utah event in 2020 away from probably not having any of this stuff. And now all of a sudden he's positioned to basically be kind of an upper ish tier guy on the PGA tour, I guess to bring that to a larger scale conversation of just like the live PGA tour thing. Do you think the live things dot off? Cause it seems like all the adults in the room are kind of exiting stage left and Greg is just sitting there. There are PGA tours in this transition year where they have these elevated events and the schedule is actually about to change. You do the golf pick them every week. Like as a golf fan, how do you view this year? How have you enjoyed like what you've seen so far? And like, what do you kind of make of this landscape going forward? Yeah, I, I, I've got you in our golf league now, so we're gonna we'll get started next week. We'll get we'll get. I'm it gonna all lose because I'm gonna pick the Mississippi guys every damn week. And if we'd have started this week, guess who'd be on top, pal? Right here. <laughs> you would have taken Hayden Buckley last week. Oh, absolutely, all. had to T four last year. But see, the way our league works, you can get him pretty cheap because it goes by World Golf ranking points, and you get so many points exactly. with so many players. So he's actually a value right now. There'll be some guys grab Buckley and those guys here early in this uh, in this thing. But no, look. I watched last week almost to kind of get re-locked in because I would not watched a ton of golf over the course of the fall season, so I was paying more attention. Um, the live thing, yeah, look, I think that the only way this thing works moving forward other than – because at some point the Saudis are going to get tired of just throwing unlimited money into it. 
at and some point that becomes an investment anymore. Yeah, at some point that becomes an investment that just doesn't make sense. So at that point, it works and it becomes a viable league if Greg just swallows his pride. Well, let's all wait on that to happen and we'll <laughs> all die of, of lack of oxygen at that point. So, yeah, no, I think the, the PGA Tour has made some necessary steps. I think they've benefited so much from, as you mentioned, a lot of young talent coming out where there are guys you can get behind, whether it be Hayden Buckley or Will Zalatoris or whomever, where you're like, oh, okay, let, this, this is cool and I can, I can like this guy and this is what's next. Um, and frankly, a lot of those live golf guys have had a hard time just keeping their Q ratings up from a likability standpoint because what live golf needed was some really likable people over there where people cared. And everybody that's gone over there, there's been some level of grimy to it. There's just something where they don't they they lose some exposure and you don't care as much anymore. I mean, you know, look, Dustin Johnson is still one hell of a golfer, but people talk about him less than ever. I, I was mean, gonna say, when's the last it, time you talked about him, a, Patrick Reed, DeShambo, any of those guys? Do you know what they're doing? Do you know their off seasons? Like what's their schedule? None of that shit. No. So I mean, none of that matters. I mean, it's a league that was on freaking YouTube last year. So no, it, look, it, 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 if you wanted to be adults in the room. You could figure it out, but it just doesn't feel like that's the case. And at some point, the Saudis are going to get bored with it and money's going to dry up and that will be the end of it. We'll see the fascinating thing that happens from that point. Um, the PGA Tour is not blameless in what they've done, but they have taken some steps to make it more interesting. We've always had elevated and non-elevated events. That's just life. I mean, you know, look, I mean, I saw uh, Kyle Porter put out that the strength of schedule was basically the same in the Sony this year versus last year. But it's always good to define things and put yes. names on them. And when you can take these non-elevated events and know you're going to get some top 50 players in the world, but you're also going to get the opportunities to see some of the young guys, see them challenge, see them kind of up and come, if you will, I think that's a big deal. So, no, I, th I think the PGA Tour has regained health in a lot of ways, maybe compared to wherever they were last season. Um, and it's, it's going to be a fun year. I mean, there's guys where – you know, you're going to you're going to have the more casual golf fan that watches golf get even more introduced to a Tom Kim this year and guys like that, where I think by the time you get to, you know, major season and you're ready to go, I think it's going to look like it always is. I think slowly you're going to almost kind of forget about live golf and the guys that left. And we're, we're all you know, habitual in our watching. We watch the same channels and the same tournaments. And Look, when you flip it on, you want to see Riviera. You want to see the Sony Open where it is. You want to see all those different things that we're used to seeing. And you pick out some dudes on Sunday you're cheering for, and you're trying to hope that Siwoo Kim doesn't chip in there on 18 or what or 17 Public or whatever. Enemy it was number there. one of this podcast going forward, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, well, look, I mean, you know, uh, uh, Sungjae was already our favorite person from anywhere yes. over in that area. So, like, we're already already going the other direction, but. No, I, I think that it's been a really, really, really good six months for the PGA Tour, and it's set up for a for a better season than had they not made some of the concessions and the changes that they have. I enjoyed the hell out of us. I was reading, trying to catch up on the Live Golf PGA Tour thing, and like they were trying to basically file for discovery for the PIF, the Saudi Investment Fund, and they were arguing that they don't have day to day control over Live, so they won't. And I looked it up, and it's like, oh, they own ninety five percent of it. So their argument is basically, like, yeah, we gave this third, this Greg Norman guy two billion bucks. We don't know what he's doing with it. We're just, we're just off to the side. That guy could be doing whatever the hell he wants. Last thing before I let you go, I know the site's doing well. How much do you have the capital to fork over for me to convince Buckley to put the Rebel Grove logo on a hat, the side of the shirt? I, I feel like that's an opportunity that could come. I don't know the priciness of it. He probably could cut us a deal. Like, just thoughts on that. I, I'll, I'll lock you into a contract here right then. Yes or no? I mean, you know, look, but, you know, Renaissance put their stuff on a few bags over the years. So maybe, you know, is, a, is another Mississippi company trying to find its way um, 
you know, it's uh, it's it, it, it's a it's it, it's it, I, I don't think we can afford it. But, hey, you know, some guys, you know, his people, he knows your people. Let's let's, let's see what happens. See if we, you know, if nothing else, like the bottom of the golf bag or something, even, you know, just when the caddy picks it up, maybe you can see the bottom of it. Potato log podcast coming to a TV screen near you. He is Chase Parham. I appreciate the time as always, my friend. I'm sure we'll catch up for college baseball season, but uh, good to see you. We'll talk soon. Absolutely. Appreciate it, bud. All right, that was my guy, Chase Parham. Appreciate his time as always. We'll be back at it later this week. Going to talk to Weldon and then going to talk a little college baseball with Colin Brister. That's right. It's that time of year again. Going to get Colin back on the show as Ole Miss starts its preseason practice at the end of this week. We're going to have a little bit of a preview show. Probably not the full-blown preview. We'll save that for kind of the week of the season, but definitely talk about this 2023 Ole Miss team, the expectations coming off a national title, and a lot of other stuff. So great stuff coming down the pipe for you at the Rippy Rights Podcast. Thanks for reading, listening, subscribing. As always, have a great start to your week, and uh, we'll catch you here again in a couple of days.